this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken. And this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. Right. So so today... We're a little late with this episode because of scheduling. Yes. Yes, we are a little late. I've been sick. You were sick. And we had some schedule. But... And I have an update before you... Before we... Right? Yes. <laughs> Sorry. I'm a little distracted today. You don't want me you to go You want to talk about it. You can talk about it while I look up what episode to refer people to. Okay. So why are you distracted, Well, Mark? tomorrow is the launch party for my new book. You have a book? Uh, <laughs> I know. I make that joke every time. Sorry, everybody. Well, and, and I do. And I won't and go what into is the name of this new book? Bad News Travels Bad Fast. Bad News Travels Fast. Which is ironic. Available on Amazon. And, and many other places. Right, and other places, too. And Audible. But for you listeners, probably Amazon, because your bookstores, it's not in the bookstores yet, and it's not on my publisher's Although website. you can go in and demand Anyway, it. I was going to try to make this short. Oh. You can <laughs> demand it at your bookstore. I won't go into all the issues, but let's just say my books finally arrived after many issues having to deal with who they were shipped by, and the U.S. Postal Service, which was no help at all. Sorry, sorry. Oh, you fucking bitch. Okay, sorry. And the U.S. Postal Service, who was no help at all, apparently looking at the same tracking information I was. And the books finally arrived today, the day before the party. And it looks like the box broke open at some point and they were ran over by a truck. And there are like four that are sellable. So that's the yeah, short version. Four. Uh, out of 30. And they're, well, and they're not even, I mean, they're sellable, but, but they're, they're not pristine, put it that way. Yeah. And it's, and I knew because um got two boxes, one of my first book, it's a three book series so far. And when that one came, it had been packed horrifically and two of the books were damaged. And I knew, and that came when it was supposed to two weeks ago, one and a half weeks ago, and so I knew that this one would be, if it ever showed up, would be in bad shape. And I'd just like to advocate for the post office. When somebody calls because they're missing an important package and your tracking information is saying the same thing for two weeks, don't just look at the same tracking information I was looking at, you know? And if a box of something breaks open and you have to repack it, don't just put a little apology note in the box to the person and you can, my information was on there. I've been in touch with the Postal Service. Just contact the person and tell them your goods were damaged, you know? Yeah. Anyway, that's my, it's upsetting to me, but we're going to try to soldier through here, right? Okay. Okay, I have an update now that you had your little, yeah, okay. Hissy fit. Well, it's not a hissy fit. Okay, you can cut that out. I understand why you're upset. Are those your notes? Those are the notes for the NNW. Yes. Wow. And that was before the books came. Um, so anyway, uh, my update has to do with, I, I be, I'm pretty sure it was episode 51 that I did a mini thingy, mini thingy. Mini topic. A mini topic. It was one of our first mini topics. Well, I'm, I'm going to talk about that later. Okay. So Carol Shero, I'll kind of briefly talk about what she did 
but you should listen to episode 51 for all the details because it's a very interesting story. But she is a mentally disturbed woman who drove onto a little league field while the game was being played and drove around the bases in her car. And then when she went to leave, her car hit this guy and pinned him against the gate. He was trying to close the gate, 63-year-old guy, and he died. That's the short part of the story. And it does have kind of a twist in it, but you should listen to yeah, that. Yeah, listen episode. to it. So Carol Shero, she was scheduled to appear in court in the beginning of September. She has been being held in jail. I don't think she was given bail. And this is York County. In York Southern County. Maine. Yeah, it was in, in Samford. In Samford is where she did her deed, and she's being held in the at the York County Jail in Alfred. Her, she was supposed to appear in court in September, but nobody was ready, apparently. So they said the last thing I heard was they were pushing it back to the beginning of October, maybe October 10th, but she still has not appeared in court. Yeah. I suspect she's they're having psychiatric testing on her. She's a disturbed person, yeah. obviously. But I have a... I have a story. I do have a story. So... My coworker has been dating somebody for about a year, and she was at his house around the holidays, so almost a year ago. His phone rang, his cell phone, and it was a number that he didn't recognize, but he answered it. And he's quite a friendly person and knows a lot of people, apparently, and gives his number out to people. So he answered the phone, and there was a woman on the other end, and she said, uh, do you know who this is? And he's like, I hate no. when people And do. he said, no, I don't recognize your voice or the number. And she said, remember, we used to play basketball together in high school? And he's like... I don't remember playing basketball with any girls when I was in high school. And she said, we dated in high school. And he's like, okay. And she, and it was this woman, Carol. Wow. She and he had dated very briefly in high school. Hmm. And he said, how did you get my number? And she said, um, I have my ways. Ooh, oh, that's scary. And then... Um, Is he from the area? He's from the Sanford area, yeah. yes. And my coworker, um, his girlfriend, was like, who was that? And he's like, uh, some weirdo that I knew in high school. The woman continued to keep calling. He finally had to block her. Wow. It was funny because they were watching the news together when this <laughs> happened. And he's like, there she is. That's the one that called me at Christmas time. Oh, that's funny. And she was like, what? Yeah. So uh, that's strange. But the poor woman, I mean, I, I, she terrified people. I'm not Sometimes minimizing people... what she did. But the guy she did kill, at least it was kind of a karma moment because he had been involved in the hit and run accident years before. Right. And, and we're talking about the guy she killed. Yes, not the guy the, she killed, not right. my not my Friend's boyfriend. boyfriend. So you have to listen to that right. story. Oh, thank you. That was interesting update. Yes, and I don't have any updates on Albert Flick. As far as I know, he's still sitting in jail. I've I've been looking up, and the only things that come up are I haven't seen anything on the news. I haven't. I have a very quick update or texted to death episode. I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but it's obvious when you see the title to it. The young woman who was charged and found guilty for convincing the kid to commit suicide, that's going all the way to the Massachusetts Supreme Court right now. Oh, interesting. So uh, that'll be interesting to see. I think the Massachusetts Supreme Court, because I just remembered it now. And and then the next one up would be the Court of Appeals. The U.S. Court of Appeals. If it's the Massachusetts Supreme Court that it's going to, I can't. I'm just remembering this now. It might be. But. Interesting. We have what we decided, because we do it often enough, to have an occasional 
New feature. Yes, occasional, not every time. Right. The main. So don't put pressure on us, please. Right. Because of its nature, it wouldn't be every time. It's the main mini topic. Yes, because we've done these a few times. Right. And, and every once in a while in Maine, there's a crime story that makes the national news and is interesting. And so when we have it, and I've got a theme song. And so that's a song nice that if, song. You, if you went to elementary school in Maine, you probably recognize. A customer sang that song to me on the phone the other yeah. day. Don't Yeah, don't mention Someone who was not from Maine. No, I don't mm-hmm. even remember who it was. Well, I had an idea. They sang the whole fucking oh, song. Well, it doesn't last that long. I know, unless but still, it it's like, Jesus, okay, I know, I'm glad you learned end. that fucking it's song. It's a good thing Maine only has 16 counties, but there's a beer that came out 16 counties last year. And I had thought of a great ad campaign that they could, like, have people in a bar, like, and they're drinking. It's a craft beer, drinking the beer. And somebody kind of starts singing that song. Obviously, it's a bar in Maine. And then everybody else kind of starts singing Now they're going to steal that idea from you. Let them. Let them. It's there. It's theirs. That's That's the kind of generous person I am. Okay, so what is your... I don't even know what this is. Oh, I think you do because I texted you about it it multiple times and told you I was going to do it as a mini topic because I didn't want you to. Yeah, but... Okay. Okay, so I'll just get right to it. George Stanley's property isn't hard to miss on Route 202 in Green, Maine, which is the main route between Augusta and Lewiston. While there are many properties that are what used to be politely called a Yankee dooryard in Green and the surrounding towns, Stanley's has stood out for more than a decade. The rambling group of wooden buildings that are pretty close to the road are covered with attached items and signs that read things like American Pickers and Hoarders. Although, uh, can I break in for a minute? I believe he was there even before that, and he used to have a sign that said, Thing Sale. Yes, he did. Because we used to always laugh. Right, he's been there for a while. But now they say American Pickers and Hoarders and stuff. There were items spread through the yard, and of course, there was a giant green wooden alien on the (gasps) roof. Yes. So at the beginning of October, when a Craigslist ad proclaimed everything was free at the property and people could come and take it, they descended on it. It may have looked like junk, but in a days long free for all, they also took two brand new generators worth mm-hmm. six or seven thousand dollars, a cantilevered solar canopy, um, one of those big ones that you put on the side yeah. of the house, still in its box, worth more than a thousand dollars, a wooden cutout of Paul Bunyan, though they <gasps> left the Blue Ox Babe. What? Numerous packaged items that he had gotten. He had hunting caps and things like that because the hunting season was coming up. And they cut the head off the alien. Why did they do that? I don't know. Couldn't they have just taken the alien? Did they have to cut its head? Well, it gets worse. So let me... They also slit the tires of a Dodge Neon he was restoring. Yeah, and other things. They took a Sawzall. That's one of a big saw that can cut through... It's sheet like rock. A, it's like a power saw, but right. it, yes. They took it to the buildings and to other items, hacking pieces off. They used bolt cutters to cut through the chains that held the doors locked and closed and through the locks and went yes, indoors. Yes, yes. Yep. 
A video by Lewis and Sun Journal reporter Mark Laflamme on October 3rd shows trash and items scattered and tossed across the yard. The young woman that Mark Laflamme is interviewing in the video, which I'll post to our website eventually, with a kind of giddy self-righteousness says she was told the owner hadn't paid his taxes and was in jail, and the town condemned the property and opened it to the public and told people they could take what they wanted. The young woman and her baseball cap boyfriend said she, quote, heard it from some lady we saw at the food bank. That's the same thing I heard, says a woman standing nearby. Well, it must be true. Even if the owner, George Stanley, had been jailed for refusal to pay taxes, something that I don't think happens in Green, Maine, or much of anywhere else in America, unless you're in the mob, (laughs) she must not have been paying much attention in civics class. If a town condemns a property, what real is likelihood they're going to open it up for people to take what they want? Has that ever happened before? No. The young woman in the video said they'd come the past two days, and that that was their third day there, and they were always finding good stuff. I bet. The thing is, the owner, George Stanley, wasn't in jail. He was in Florida. The ad on Craigslist was bogus. This could be a random prank, but it smacks of something more. First of all, someone knew Stanley was out of state. And it may not surprise you to know that he had a history with the town over what he saw as a business and what they saw as a yard full of junk. It's not clear where he's originally from, but he told the Lewiston Sun Journal Back in 2012, he was raised in a religious cult, had started gathering items on that property um, years ago. It's not really clear when, but it's been there a long time. Yeah, I used to... Right. The town finally did something in 2011, and I don't know if he had had... My guess is he had had conflicts over it before that. Yes, I'm sure. But at town meeting in 2011... And that's a common form of democracy here in Maine, small towns. All the residents vote. And they're not like the ones on the Gilmore Girls. No, not, not nothing like them. The town in 2011 passed a flea market ordinance requiring anyone who sells used items on their property for more than four days in a row, and this is kind of a simplification, but has to get a business license. In my experience working at newspapers that cover small New England towns, every single one of which had a Yankee Dooryard guy, as I'm sure yours might, the ordinance was probably directed right at George Stanley. Stanley thought so, too. He twice applied for a business license in 2011 and 2012 and was twice denied. The first time because he didn't have a business plan and his signs didn't conform to the regulations. Oh, come on. Including the fact he had too many and they were too (laughs) big, said town manager Charles Noonan. The second time it was because the signs didn't conform again. Stanley didn't appeal the decision with the town, but he did take the town to court. The case wended its way through Maine's court system, and I won't bore you with all the details and back and forth. It went, there were counterclaims and appeals and blah, blah, blah. It took three years to be resolved. Ultimately, he lost and owed the town $12,244 in fines and $200 in court costs <laughs> because he'd continued to operate the business without a license through all this. One of his court filings in Androscoggin Superior Court accused the town of, quote, a sicko plot to destroy me utterly, and I am a stain on their pristine, he had in quotes, town. He said the refusal of a license cost him loss of income, loss of business, distress, suffering, pain, and aggravation. He asked for a jury trial, but I don't think that ever happened. While all that was going on, Stanley also got enough signatures on a petition to get an item on the town meeting warrant for March 2013, that would repeal the ordinance. And the warrant is what you vote on at town meeting. Most of it is budget items, but some of it's ordinances. And the vote failed 142 to 25. 
so the ordinance was not overpealed. And one of the things about town meeting, Green has about 4,000 people, but as you can see, less than 200 Only made that people decision. that give a shit show up, yeah. Yeah, and and like my town has 2,000 and something people, about 100 go to the town meeting, and so we're the ones making all the decisions that everybody complains about for the rest yes. of the year. Well, Gotta vote, people. An article in the Sun Journal in January 2013, before this vote, said that Stanley was the only person who applied for a license under that flea market ordinance. He told the Sun Journal in 2012 that he's, quote, more than just the junk man by the side of the road in Green, Maine. I buy out-of-season items from the big box stores for pennies on the dollar and turn them around for a modest profit, he said. We are not into making money. In fact, most of the time we lose money. He had a partner at this time, a woman. She's not mentioned in the recent story, so I don't know what happened to her. But It's an unfinished project, like the Sistine Chapel, but <laughs> that took seven years. Give me seven years and see where we are. Although this is almost seven years after this, and um, I don't think he's much farther. But anyway, over the years, he'd planted more than 25 fruit trees that he hoped would sustain him and his partner at the time, Donna Wesson, that they could use for food and also he could sell the fruit. They also donated and helped in thrift shops and food pantries. There's a feature photo from the Portland Press-Herald online from 2013 showing him in the lobster dip, which is Ugh. winter charity thing where everybody goes and runs mm. in the ocean. And, Ooh, on New um, Year's Day. He said he's had 29 stores. He's been a landlord and worked with the poor and oppressed. Quote, I have helped pick up people off the streets and given shelter and jobs to many, reaching all fabrics of society, he said. I work on a shoestring budget, and I only hope to make a few dollars to put gas in my car to get around. He had no running water when the 2012 Sun Journal story was written, and had built an outhouse, but the town didn't like that, and he had to buy a portable outhouse. The story was written in the midst of both his court case and the fight to repeal the ordinance. This is like Custer's last stand, he told the Sun Journal. And I'm not going to go on a big thing, because I did last episode, but <laughs> once again, we are confounded by inefficient reporting. Okay. It's not clear what happened in the five years since. He's obviously still operating his yard full of stuff. Mm. There are no articles about whether the town took action, whether he ever paid his fines that I could find. Some of the articles, like the one town meeting in 2013 was repealed. They took all that stuff from 2012, put it in the article, and then said he'd said it that year, and it was the exact same word, so obviously he had it. Bad so, reporting. Yeah, so nobody followed up. So I'm not sure what has happened in the five years since, but Stanley still had his business. I've driven by it many times as I cruise down Route 202, which, by the way, I always think of as the death highway. Yeah, so I was just going to say. There's been a lot of head-on fatal. It's mostly two lanes. They've done some things to mitigate that, but it's between Augusta and Lewiston-Auburn, which are the two kind of urban centers of this part of Maine, and a lot of... People are always passing pass when they shouldn't be. And all sorts I've of stuff. I've seen many near misses. Yep, it's nothing to do with the story, but I'm yeah, just whatever. It doesn't seem as though the ordinance did what the town probably hoped it would do, which was clean up Stanley's property. And I've seen it a lot, by the way, municipalities trying to legislate something that's not going to be solved, no. solved by laws and fines because it has more to do with the person who's collecting the items and how they see it it's often a mental health issue. No one's quite sure how to deal with it or recognizes it as such. The person, I've seen it time and time again, say, this is my livelihood, this is my business. 
this this is my investment for my retirement, and you, what you and the town are seeing is a lot of chunk that nobody's going to pay money for. Sometimes people do pay money and for that And sometimes people, stuff, I'm not saying they don't, and he did have stuff that wasn't, but what I'm saying is that trying to legislate yeah. out of this problem never it's works. It's not going to work. Because how do you, how do you, um, it's hard to enforce it. The person does not see it the same way you do. And it's and, happened in many towns. And they feel here. victimized. And like you upon. were saying, there's like one person, I, I was thinking of a guy that happened to in Richmond with, with cars. Every town, yeah. And, every town. Yeah. But in any case, in late September, an ad appeared on Craigslist. Quote, come one, come all, everything on the lot is free. And I'll quote the Sun Journal since the ad is no longer online. So enthusiastic was the advertisement, it used the word free five times in the headline alone. The result, one neighbor said, was like a seagull looting of Stanley's property. And I just want to say as an editor, that's an awful sentence. And that's got to be an inland seagull. I think what they're probably picturing is the dump. Yeah. Where you have dozens of seagulls descending on yes. stuff. Not to report or shame. Seagull. Their but seagull's not a real bird anyway. I, it's a herring gull. Yes. I'm, I'm just saying it's a bad sentence. Yes. It's a bad metaphor. Yes. And then the sentence goes on, As men and women showed up at all hours to grab all they could grab, ignoring numerous no trespassing signs as they did. Mike Burgess, who lives nearby in Leeds, Stanley lived right on the green Leeds town line, so this guy was a neighbor of Stanley, said he's seen 10 or 12 trucks and cars and even ramp trucks. There every day. I think a ramp truck is maybe one of those tow trucks that where the ramp goes down. Or might, he might have been talking about like a flatbed truck. Possibly. Because they usually have a thing that goes up and down. Right. Okay. Do they have a ramp? Well, yeah. Okay. I mean, it, All right. Anyway. I think we, we're talking about the same thing. Anyway. No, we're not. The, I can't believe that from an ad, people are go- going there and cleaning it out, Burgess said. The stuff doesn't belong to them. Why isn't somebody stopping them? No shit. The looters even took bushes that Stanley had bought from Home Depot to landscape his yard. They took the fruit trees that were referenced Aww. in the stories of six years ago. They took a pallet of roofing supplies worth $45 a bundle. He told the reporter in a recorded phone call in part of the YouTube video, by the time I get there, there will be nothing left. The looters took bolt cutters, as I said earlier, to the double locked doors, chains, locks, and bolts on his house and went inside. They destroyed a meditation sanctuary he'd created for himself, he has cancer, and others with cancer. When Stanley was first told about the ad, he said he contacted Craigslist and got them to take it down. Stanley thinks it came down on the third day it was up, but it it had been shared on Twitter and other places, and obviously the young woman the reporter talked to didn't even see it on Craigslist. She just heard about it from somebody. The Sun Journal reported that a cached preview could be found in a web search, but the entire ad couldn't, but it appeared it began running September 25th. Stanley said the Maine State Police weren't trying to track down his stuff or who took it. This was on October 3rd, I think. The State Police didn't return the reporter's phone calls. Besides his issues with the town, Stanley was also... And Stanley said he talked to a trooper, Renee. I don't know if Renee's the guy's first name. This is Maine, so there's a lot of Rennies. Or the guy, and Rennie, I mean by a first name, Renee. Or the guy's last name. The Maine State Police didn't return the reporter's call, so I'm not sure what their involvement was. Besides his issues with the town, Stanley was also pursuing harassment charges against three neighbors at the time the ad was placed. Mm -hmm. Hmm. The Sun Journal speculated the court history with the town over the ordinance may have caused hard feelings, 
But I have trouble believing anyone at the town office would do something like no, that. No, The town clerk, of course, who they didn't use her name in the story inexplicably, when called by the Sun Journal, backed that up. The town had not placed the Craigslist ad, she said. Hadn't told people they could loot the property. This has nothing to do with the town, she said. We would have no reason to take ownership they would never do that. of that property. Even if they did, they would Right, I've known enough town officials. They wouldn't, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have an ad like that. And she said we, had, we would have known. no reason to take ownership of that property, which means the guy had paid his taxes, yes. which is something you can look up in a town like Green. If it's like mine, they print the people yes. who are in tax arrears in the town report Shame. every year. Yep. It's not clear since the flurry of reporting on this, like the seagulls, mostly news organizations <laughs> just rerunning the Sun Journal's handful of stories. It's not clear since then what's going on. It's three weeks after the fact. Yeah, what the fuck? There was an article that said, and this was way back at the beginning, that the DA, Andy Robinson, said he's confident the property will be recovered. He didn't elaborate on Is that. It? He How? didn't elaborate on whether there was... The Sun Journal reported that Stanley had also contacted the guy running against Robinson, Republican Seth Carey, to see if he could help. And I'm not sure it's why. Not. He's a lawyer, Seth Carey, but unfortunately for Stanley's effort, Carey has problems of his own. Oh, yeah. His attorney's license is suspended, and he's been ordered by a judge to stay away from an ex-girlfriend who's filed a protection yeah. from abuse order against him after he stalked her allegedly, by parking in her driveway, approaching her at the gym, texting her, and following her he in his car. He just wanted her back. He was I trying know. to win her back. Carrie's attorney's license was already suspended on an interim <laughs> basis after a judge granted a protection from abuse order to a different woman mm. earlier this year who alleged Carrie had sexually assaulted her on three occasions while she lived in a spare bedroom in his house in Rumford. <laughs> a judge in August ruled he'd violated several main bar rules including unlawful conduct stemming from the sexual advances, or assaults, I would call them. Yes. He continues to run for DA in District 3, yeah, why not? which covers Androscog and Oxford and Franklin counties, so it's a big swatch of western Maine. Odds are, with all that going on, he won't win. So Stanley's huh. out of luck <laughs> you think on, so? on that front. Stanley had also put an ad in the paper around that same time, at the beginning of October, asking for a handyman to help him restore his locks. A day or two after all this hit the news, Stanley w- was back from Florida and had been on TV the past few days. This was at the beginning of October, as I said. I was coming back from a work assignment that took me by his house, and I half expected to see people there. I think this was the day after he was on TV talking about how he wanted people to bring the stuff back, and he had asked for a locksmith for help. I half expected to see people there helping him, maybe bringing stuff back. It was funny, because before I got there, I was trying to remember exactly where it was, because I was coming from Lewiston, and I saw these parked Cars parked by the side of the road and, like, all the stuff. And then I realized it was a yard sale. And I kept going. He was at the other end of town. Like I said, boy, was I dumb. When I got to his property, there was a TV truck and Stanley in a yard, still strewn with junk. No one bringing stuff back. No one there helping him. Not even me. I took a couple pictures. Since then... You vulture. Since then, the first week of October, there's been nothing reported. No follow-ups, no checks on how he's doing. I found some stories that appeared the next week. They were just reprints of the Lewiston Sun Journal's story, which was also run in the Press Herald, Portland Press Herald, the biggest paper in the state. And I just want to say the company that owns the Press Herald now owns six of the state's seven daily newspapers and almost all the weeklies. So instead of having, like, 
in the old days, even a couple of years ago, you would have had the Sun Journal doing a story. Yes. You would have had either the Press Herald or the Kennebec Journal doing a story. You might have had a weekly somewhere. And you could find a bunch of stories that all would have had different information. Now everything's being covered by one person. Yeah. And it's really diluted the quality oh, yes. of the news in Maine. You know, I originally came back here in 2011 because I was excited. One of the reasons I was excited by the really energetic newspaper and news rivalries in the state, and that's all just gone down the toilet. Anyway, there have been no checks with law enforcement to see Hmm. if Robinson's assertion of three weeks ago now that the property would be recovered has happened. Nobody's asked anybody if they're doing an investigation that I can tell. And I know the reporter called the state police trooper to ask him. But as a reporter, the trooper may not tell you anything. You call their spokesman. You call the sheriff's department. I know. You call the DA. You, you know, maybe they're working behind the scenes. And if something comes up, we'll update you. But there's been nothing I can find. I, I spent about two hours trying to find something. And yes, online. But everything in Maine news pretty much is online yes, right now. Is. My money is on the neighbors he had the harassment complaints against. Well, the neighbor quoted earlier, Mike Burgess, said he'd had issues with Stanley, but he didn't approve of the way strangers were, quote, allowed to pick through the property without restraint, to quote quote the Sun Journal. For Burgess, the matter raises uncomfortable questions. If I left my home for a couple weeks on vacation, does that mean someone can put a fictitious ad on Craigslist and people are going to show up and clean my house out? Yes, Mike. Yes, it does. But is that really the biggest question this raises? I'm going to point out here, it's not about you and it's not likely to happen to you. Someone targeted George Stanley. It's easy to make light of the guy, especially if you live in a rural or small town state and have seen guys like this. But his life was wrecked. And the big question is whether anyone from law enforcement to his town, to his neighbors, to those jackasses who gleefully not only were taking his stuff, but destroying his property, who were on video, who are easy to identify, and I'm sure the reporter, even though he didn't identify him on the video, which he should have, if if you were quoting him in a news story, you would have. So I'm sure he has their names, if anyone's taking it seriously. I will say, when he first called the police, he says what they told him was, because there was an on. Uncr- an ad on Craigslist, they couldn't do much about it. Now, Green, as I said, is a town of 4,000. It doesn't have its own police department. He said Trooper Renee would drive by a few times a day and shoo people away, and none of that makes sense to me. So it would behoove the police to at least respond to that. I didn't have time with this to look up the law. How how can it be? But if a property owner says, somebody put a bogus ad on Craigslist and people are now looting my property... I don't think the police response would be, well, there's an ad on Craigslist. There's not much we I know. Can do. That doesn't make sense. To me, that's upsetting. And I kind of agree with what the neighbor said for everybody that what's to stop anybody from doing that to anybody when right. you're away or even if you're just at work for the day. I agree with that. I mean, it's not like there isn't a way to find out who placed the ad. Right. It's not a totally anonymous... Right, and I've seen a couple blog posts online complaining about Craigslist and their willingness to just take ads from anyone and not be responsible for it. And I'm not saying that Craigslist has to be responsible, but they they should cooperate with I'm law enforcement. I'm also saying it's known at least who some of the people who took stuff were, and maybe the police are pursuing that. We don't know. But Stanley points out there's like an eight-minute video that the reporter took. I'll put on our website. And it's funny because the last four minutes is him just kind of ranting and raving. And somebody edited that 
and just put that part on, and that's the one with the most views. But the first four minutes is the reporter talking to people at the scene and talking to Stanley on the phone, who's still in Florida at the time. And you get the impression that people felt that this guy, because of the way his yard was and everything, and because he, he... had gotten into disputes with people and stuff that it was okay to do this. That yeah. he was somehow less of a person, mm-hmm. you know. And everybody's always going on about their rights, their property rights. Their and you too. This is America, and you you have rights to your property. Why are his property I rights know. less than anyone else? I know. So that's my main mini topic. Well, thank you. It was quite. In- Lightning. I feel bad for the man. I felt bad for him when I first saw him. I've never been one of those people who are all up in arms if my neighbor has a bunch of shit in their yard, which (laughs) happens in Maine a lot. I actually had a neighbor like that in Hollowell, and he actually got in trouble with another town that he owned property in because of that. Fairfield. Yeah. That's another town that tried to legislate. Yes, and it was because that, of that guy. Because of that guy, the, my neighbor. But he did buy a bunch of stuff at my yard sale, so I yeah. do like him. Sometimes the problem is, and of course they use this as an excuse, like the guy that had the bunch of cars, it could poison the groundwater, right. and, and people have wells in rural areas and stuff. That I understand. Some of the other stuff, if, I mean, don't like they the could put looks. a big friggin' fence around it. I don't know. I mean, some people like to go pick junk and stuff. Who it knows? wasn't, I, I will say, driving by, I was always... I was always intrigued. Intrigued by it. by it, especially once the signs pickers and horns. <laughs> but to me, it didn't look as messy as other yards. Yeah. Now there's a yard up the road from him where there's just crap in the yard. Well, there was a there's issue yards even in, everywhere. May well, there was an issue in, in my town where they were trying to pass an ordinance to, or they may have passed it. I don't know because there was a guy who would have a garage sale like in the summer, like every weekend he would have one, and the town was trying to say he was having a um, right he had a business yeah i don't i don't know the thing that bothers me is the stuff was important to that guy it was his life it was his life people felt like they had the right to not only take stuff why is it okay how would you it wasn't just people taking stuff they just destroyed it yeah they broke holes in his walls they wrecked his friggin' cancer sanctuary they cut the head off the dinosaur you know the alien yeah, the alien. <laughs> Same difference. <laughs> but, you know what I mean? They gleefully, yes. the people in the video, there's this kind of giddiness yeah, to I them. Know. This excitement that they're getting away with doing something. And he says in that video, he doesn't think the people who were taking stuff were so gullible as to believe that ad. It, was, thinks, convenient of, right. it was a convenient excuse. Right. That people knew what they were doing, and I gotta believe. No one believe, stopped and said, "Wait a minute." This, I gotta believe it was. This? It was obvious someone. It was obvious someone who knew he was out of state and wasn't yes. there. And it was obvious to me if he had harassment complaints against three different neighbors. And I don't know what the details of those complaints are, but I'm sure somebody thought it would be funny as hell to do that. Yeah, and they they really should be prosecuted. It's not a prank. People are are stealing. People are burglarizing and vandalizing somebody's property. Right. And it's not... I don't even think pranks are funny. I don't think humiliating people, embarrassing people... I don't think it's funny. And he's obviously always at the expense of somebody. Right. And the more mental health issues you have, the funnier people think it is, and the the more humiliating. And and that kind of... uh, Segues into your story? A little bit. But before we go into that, I just want to tell you something. Today I was reading the paper... 
the advice column, Carolyn Hacks. Tell me about it. She's a, if you've never read her listeners, I miss. she's Washington Post uh, yeah. advice columnist, Carolyn Hacks, H-A-X. And guess what she recommended to somebody? The Gift of Fear and we'll its see. sequel. Good. So I thought that might be. By vind- Gavin DeBecker. Yes. And I Which, thought that might vindicate if you. If you don't listen to us regularly. And the reason I remember I that. Feel, I, was <laughs> I don't feel like I need vindication for constantly <laughs> recommending the gift of fear. Just because you make fun of me. I don't make fun of you. Doesn't mean I need I don't, vindication. I don't. I think it's a good thing. Anyway. I think everybody should read it because then people wouldn't have their heads up their ass when people are jerking them around and c- controlling them and abusing them. Yes. Okay. Okay. Today I'm going to do, I'm not going to focus on just one crime. I'm going to do one of those things where it's a few. And this is a suggestion from our loyal listener, Rhonda. Yes. Who Thank suggested you, that we do an episode on, on Ouija board murders. And I wasn't sure if she was referring to a specific murder or just murders connected with Ouija boards. But when I started researching, I found quite a few interesting crimes. So I'm doing a few. Oh, of them. good. This I'm will be good. And it, just in time for Halloween. Yes. Hopefully I can get this edited and posted. By yes, it, does, it has got kind of a Halloween theme. And I didn't do it that way on purpose. I just decided I couldn't think of what to do when I knew she had recommended that. So before I start the murder stories, some of our listeners may not know what a Ouija board is. In modern times, it's basically a parlor game owned by Hasbro that most people don't take seriously. It's a smooth board about 18 inches by 12 inches that has the alphabet, numbers 1 through 0, yes and no, and goodbye written on it. Two or more people rest their hands lightly on a planchette, which is kind of an inverted heart-shaped pointer thing with little legs. It used to be wood, now it's plastic. It's got a little pointer on the, it's an inverted heart. Right. Yep. And the pointer is on the tip of it. The planchette supposedly moves around the board without anyone actually pushing it. Impulses from the participants' fingers make it move, supposedly. Its purpose is to communicate with the spirits of people who have died. These spirits will make the planchette move around the board, answering questions by spelling out words, pointing out numbers, etc. Automatic writing used as a communication tool with spirits has been around for at least a thousand years, according to Wikipedia, and also for mental floss. That's where I got kind of the background on the Ouija board. Mm. Not the specific board that we know, but the idea of spirits directing a person, a living person, to write, to communicate with the living. So, like, you know, you, your hand is like, oh, I can't stop. I'm writing. <laughs> there is written evidence in ancient China up through history, India, Greece, medieval Europe, about spirits taking over someone's hand, for instance, and writing or directing them to point things out to others. <laughs> I'm, I'm just like a, a boyfriend I had in college used to take my hand and hit me in the face. With Why, you hit Why yourself? Are you? yeah. um, that's about like every older brother in the world has ever done. Why are you hitting yourself? The Ouija board, as we know it, first came into popularity in the later part of the 19th century in America. After the Civil War, people became very interested in spiritualism and speaking to the dead. I think probably because so many people lost loved ones in the Civil War. Many. And wanted a chance to talk to them again. Mediums and seances became a fad, and the spiritualists used a lot of techniques to communicate with the spirits. One was called a talking board. The talking boards were similar to what we now know as the Ouija board. In 1890, Elia Bond patented the planchette and the board, and so is officially credited as inventing it, even though he basically just took an existing idea and ran with it. He was an attorney and inventor. He has a patents on a lot of things, so he, when he saw a good idea, what the hell? Steal it. The boards had been manufactured by the Kennard Novelty Company. Its owner, Charles Kennard, said 
the Ouija board itself had told him its name. <laughs> and that the word Ouija, which is O-U-I-G-A, was ancient Egyptian for good luck. I think when we were kids, we usually said Ouija board. Or a lot of people say Ouija board. Yeah. But. An employee of either Bonds or Canards or both is very unclear on Wikipedia, on my sources. But his name was William Fold, F-U-L-D, took over production of the boards in 1901. He also changed the known history of the Ouija board, saying that he himself had invented it. And its name came from the French and German words for yes, which is now the accepted mm. That which could be. Who the fuck knows? Ouija. Ouija. Fold redesigned the board many times, and he held 21 patents on it. He sued his many copycats until he died in 1927. In 1966, the Fold family sold the family business to Parker Brothers, the game company, and in 1991, Parker Brothers was sold to Hasbro, and Hasbro owns all the patents to the Ouija boards now. So Ouija boards are sold by a game company. And people have always had a level of cynicism about them, as they always have about a lot of aspects of spiritualism. Even back in the 1800s when it was so popular, a lot of people thought it was a bunch of bullshit. Mm -hmm. Which I tend to think so. You'll find out what I think about it. In the 1950s... Will we really? (laughs) That's all I can look for. (laughs) In the 1950s, William Benjamin Carpenter did studies and came up with a theory called the the idiomotor effect. The theory that muscular movement can happen without the person consciously deciding to take action. This can explain things like automatic writing and dowsing as well, you know, for water. My theory is that people just unconsciously or sometimes consciously move the planchette to get the answers they want. That's my theory. Oh, interesting. In this spirit, (laughs) get it, spirit. Yeah. I will tell you these stories. None really have anything paranormal about them, although some places on the internet will have you believe that they do. I'm going to do them in chronological order, which is the easiest way. And also, Mysterious Universe had a list of crimes, and there were some. There's a bunch of them. You'll see, you know, those like Ranker and places like that. But I did not take much information from that. I just used that as a starting point to research these because, frankly, I don't trust a lot of what they say on these some of these sites. Yeah. The first one is in 1929 on the Cataragas Reservation near Buffalo. It's a Seneca Reservation. By the way, I got information for this one from a lot of sources. Mysterious Universe, like I said. The New York Daily News from 2010. But also online archives of the Sandusky Register, the Cornell Daily Sun, the New York Times, and the Miami Daily News Wow. Record, all from 1930 to 31. I know there were a lot nice of archives research, of these yeah. in there. Newspaper.com is a great site, I'll tell you that. Mm, yeah. So again, uh, the Catar, I believe it's pronounced Cataragus. How's it spelled? C-A-T-T-A-R-A-U-G-U-S. Yeah, I Cataragus. If we're wrong, Buffalo people, you can uh, uh, write to us. About 30 miles from Buffalo, Nancy Bowen and Lila Jemerson, both of the Seneca Nation, were consulting a Ouija board. Nancy was trying to find out how her husband, Sassafras Charlie, Sassafras is a hard word to say. Yeah. Sassafras Charlie had died. Nancy was a tribal healer, as had been Sassafras Charlie. Lila was a teacher at the reservation school and also played piano at the Christian school on the reservation of which she was a member. I mean, she was a member of the Christian church on the reservation. At the time, there there were probably about 1,500 residents on that reservation, and I looked it up, and now there's like 600 and something. Mm. As the planchette swirled around the board under their fingertips, they asked it who killed Charlie. As it swirled around the board under their fingertips, it spelled out, they killed me. 
The woman wanted to know who. Sassafras Charlie was not short on information. The name Clotilde was spelled out. I think it's French, and I'm not good at pronunciation, people. C-L-O-T-H-I-L-D-E. Clotilde is how I'm pronouncing it. And then her address on Riley Street in Buffalo. But that wasn't all. The woman also learned that Clotilde was short, had bobbed hair, and missing teeth. The the board told them all this. Spelled mm, it all wow, out. that must have taken I a know, long time. I know, that's what I put. They also found out that the spirits wanted Nancy, Nancy Bowen, Charlie's wife, to kill Clotilde so Charlie's spirit could finally be at rest. Mm. And then that's what I wrote. They must have had a long seance. That must have been mm-hmm. a long seance. And just by chance, Lila Jimerson happened to know a woman by that oh, name. Oh, wow. Clotilde Marchand was married to sculptor Henri Marchand, an artist from Paris who worked at the Science Museum in Buffalo making nature dioramas. Henri Marchand was well-known and had studied under Rodin, who was a famous artist. In the days following the seance, Nancy Bowen started receiving letters from a Mrs. Dooley. Mrs. Dooley told her that Clotilde Marchand was a witch and had killed Charlie. Sassafras Charlie and Nancy Bowen made their living in part selling herbs on the streets of Buffalo. According to Mrs. Dooley, the mysterious letter writer, the herbs were cutting into Clotilde's witch business. So not only did she want Charlie dead, Clotilde wanted Charlie dead, but also Nancy and other members of the family because they were cutting into her witch. Right. So here's a quote from one of the letters. I know something secret. I decided that I'd better tell you and help you out. This is what I know. Charlie Bowen is killed by a witch in the city, this city of Buffalo. It was from a French woman. She killed Charlie because he had good medicine to sell in the city. Her witchcraft didn't work so good, so she decided to kill him. She killed many, many that way, Indians and white. But let me tell you more. She said she fixed another doll the the same. This doll is his wife, Nancy. So my question after reading this is if her witchcraft is so bad, then how could she kill many people with it? I don't know. I don't know. And let me say here, I found no information in everything I read about how Sassafras Charlie died. Uh, There were only phrases like mysterious circumstances, and I'm thinking that it was probably just a sudden death from natural causes or maybe a weird accident. But I would, it would be nice to know, even in the right. newspaper reports, no one said how he right. died. If he had a bullet in his head, if he was poisoned, there's a difference, I know. you know. I'm assuming it was just some, he probably dropped dead of something. And it probably wasn't mysterious, but it probably was unknown. They probably didn't know what killed him. That's my theory. Nancy became convinced that she was going to be Clotilde's next victim. And she wanted her late husband's spirit to be at peace. Also, it was known around town that Clotilde collected mushrooms in the forest. Maybe she did this. The Marchand family had lived on the reservation for a time because Henri, he had just started working at the Science Museum in Buffalo, but for 10 years he had been working for the State Museum in Albany doing dioramas, and that's how he was offered the job in Buffalo. And apparently they lived on the reservation for a while because he did, you know, dioramas of native people and stuff. So when they were living on the reservation, Clotilde went in the woods and collected mushrooms, and people thought that was weird, even though in Europe they do it all the time. People on the reservation thought it was yes, weird? Yes, they did. They um, didn't use mushrooms No, because themselves. Nancy Bowen called them strange, hellish vegetables. Oh. I know, I thought that was odd too, but, yeah. but that was one of the things that made Nancy convinced that Clotilde was a witch. And also, we're getting this all from newspapers. In the 30s, mostly. Right, so who knows... What really happened no as far as You'll see. I know. Native Americans 
Huh. You know, nobody, nobody's telling their... They're not... No. It's I, other people telling yes, their story. Yes, I understand. That's what I'm trying to say. Nancy was a superstitious woman who considered herself a tribal healer, or the old-fashioned word would be medicine woman. The first thing she tried, she burned tobacco while reciting incantations to the spirits. The smoke from the tobacco was supposed to carry the spirits to Clotilde where they would enter her stomach and kill her. Mm. But it didn't work. Then Nancy Bowen buried wooden and paper effigies of Clotilde Marchand in the ground. When the dolls rotted away, supposedly, the person they portrayed would die, but Clotilde lived on. At midnight one night, Nancy Bowen went to the grave of a famous Seneca brave. She buried corn, some food, and a small bottle of whiskey at his grave and dug up some of the dirt from the grave. She went to the Marchand home in Buffalo and sprinkled dirt around the house. The gifts at the grave were payment for the spirit to kill Clotilde, and the dirt around the house would protect the brave spirit from evil spirits. But, of course, it didn't work. So on March 7, 1930, she showed up at the Marchand's door. When Clotilde answered, Nancy Bowen beat her to death with a hammer, and just in case that didn't work, stuck some paper soaked with chloroform down her throat. Well, that's making sure. Yeah. Clotilde's 12-year-old son found her when he got home from school and ran to the science museum to tell his father, which was nearby their house. Witnesses told police that they had seen two Native women hanging around the house in the weeks before the attack, one old and one young. The police also learned that Henri Marchand had worked on the Cataragas Reservation while researching and creating his sculptures, for the dioramas at the Science Museum in Buffalo, as well as the State Museum in Albany. Henri and Clotilde had four children, and they had been in the area for about ten years. They asked Henri if there were any Native women who might want to harm his wife. Henri gave them the name Lila Jimerson, who had been one of his models. By ten o'clock the night of the murder, both Nancy Bowen and Lila Jimerson had been arrested for Clotilde Marchand's murder. According to the newspapers, when Nancy was arrested, she said, Sure, I kill her. She was a witch. I asked her if she was a witch, and she said yes. I asked her if she killed my Charlie, and she said yes. Nancy also had bloody pieces of Clotilde Marchand's clothes and parts of her eyeglasses on her. Mm. She was probably going to use them for something. According to the police, Lila Jimerson harbored an unrequited love for Henri Marchand, so she had tricked her superstitious friend into killing his wife, leaving him free for Lila. But as one paper said, quoting prosecutor Guy Moore, instead of using the traditional bow and arrow, nah. Lila had used Nancy to do it. The newspaper accounts of the time are horribly racist, as you can imagine. They call Nancy Bowen a squaw, hex woman, a sinister stooped and withered, a hag, ancient, feeble, and an aged Indian crone. <laughs> She actually was in her 60s and looks about 60. They're also misogynist. Yes. And she looks about like a woman in her 60s with right. dark hair. She's kind of stocky. She had like kind of waved hair. It wasn't. The print media called Lila Jimerson the red lilac of the Cayugas. <laughs> Time magazine called Lila red Lila Jimerson. And she was described as sallow, flat-chested, scraggle-haired, and toothless. Although photos from the time show her as an attractive woman in her mid-30s. 
One article mentions Lila is a descendant of Mary Jemison, the white woman of the Genesee. She was famous in the history of the frontier, according to this newspaper. Of course, I had to look up Mary Jemison, which was a very interesting story, but I'm not going off on that tangent. One newspaper said that Henri Marchand, quote, never was aware of the fierce aboriginal passions he had aroused. I'm sure he was. Mm. Lila Jemison was also in Buffalo that day. But she wasn't with her friend Nancy Bowen. While Clotilde was being murdered on her own doorstep, Lila Jimerson was going for a drive with Henri Marchand. She had called him and asked him to pick her up for a ride. When police asked him about it, Henri said, Indians love to go for automobile rides. (laughs) The prosecutor believed Henri Marchand when he said that Lila Jimerson was only a passing acquaintance, just someone who had modeled for him. Could he help it if she had a crush on him? But while Lila was still in jail, her family gave reporters a bunch of love letters from Henri Marchand to Lila. Mm. Their affair had started in 1922, according to an interview Lila Jimerson gave from jail. Jury selection began just 17 days after the murder. The prosecutor wanted to get it done before more shit came out about Henri Marchand, probably. Mm-hmm. At the trial, Nancy Bowen told the court that she had tried hexes, but they hadn't worked. So she decided to just go kill Clotilde. Henri Marchand's testimony probably had the newspapers in ecstasy. He testified that Lila Jimerson was one of his many lovers. He had too many to count, mm, according to him. Most Frenchmen. And many of them were Native American. He said his wife was fine with him sleeping around. He said They he, always say that. Yeah. He, well, she's I'm dead. Michael so. Peterson. He said he had to do it with a Native American woman because it made them more willing to bear their breasts to model for him. And he called it a, <laughs> quote, professional necessity. Ah, <laughs> oh, Lila, who suffered from tuberculosis, had a respiratory attack during the trial, collapsed, and was sent to the hospital. The judge declared a mistrial. There was a second trial a year later. Henri Marchand did not testify. He had moved back to Albany and had already remarried. His new wife was Clotilde's 18-year-old niece. By this time, Lila Jimerson had a new story. She admitted to being, quote, foolishly in love with Henri Marchand, but had nothing to do with the murder. She said Henri had complained he was tired of Clotilde and had been trying to get someone to kill her. The word was he had asked several of the women on the reservation to kill his wife. Lila Jimerson was acquitted at the second trial. Nancy Bowen had pled guilty to manslaughter and was released on a sentence of time served. Henri Marchand was never charged with anything, although he had been initially arrested and held as a material witness before the first trial. So that was the first Mm, it was interesting. So as you can see, the Ouija board didn't tell them anything. No. Charlie didn't tell them anything. No. Friggin' Lila got poor Nancy to do the dirty work. The next story is in a similar vein. It's only a few years later, 1933. And again, I got inform- some information from Mysterious Universe. The National Registry of Exonerations. Mm. An old article from the Arizona Republic, again, thanks to newspapers.com. And the appeal motion filed in 1936 that I found on courtlistener.com. Also, I found this to be a complicated case. It would probably make a good episode on its own, but it would be a real slog finding good information about it. It's very difficult. I mean, if if you live in the state, like the ones from Maine, it's easier to find the newspapers and stuff, but it's, ugh, God. There's conflicting information in this story, so I'll try to make sense of it. As always, different sources have different information. I try to go with what I think is most reliable. So, again, 1933, Prescott, Arizona. Dorothea Turley, 38, 
was an avid user of the Ouija board. She consulted it to answer life's questions, mm. for financial advice, even trying to find out where gold was buried. On November 8th, Dorothea and her 15-year-old daughter, Maddie, were having a session. Much of this is according to what Maddie told the police, by the way, according to court records. The board told them that Maddie should kill her dad, Ernest, when he got back from milking the cows. The board told them not to worry, no one would find out about the murder. Dorothea told Maddie that the Ouija board, quote, could not be denied. Just to make sure, they also consulted cards. Because, you know, right, to make just, sure. Yeah. Now, one source made this sound like it happened on the same night, but the court records imply that this was something that was happening over a period of time. And Dorothea wasn't even home at the time of the shooting, according to more reliable sources, which makes more sense when you hear about the crime. It seems like she planned this out, so she planned to not be there, you know, to make right. her seem less culpable. When Ernest Turley came back from milking the cows... Maddie went and got the shotgun and shot her father in the back twice as he continued with his chores. He initially survived, but died four to six weeks later, according to the sources, which are different, in the hospital in San Diego, where he had been transferred from Prescott, I guess. <laughs> Maddie told police that it had been an accident. She had been walking about 30 feet behind her father and shot at a skunk and or trip, <laughs> depending on. The police were skeptical. The angle of the wounds and the apparent range from which the gun was shot belied her story. Maddie eventually confessed, telling the police the Ouija board told her to do it. Dorothea was also arrested. Turns out Dorothea Turley had a boyfriend and wanted her husband out of the picture. Ernest Turley was a retired gunner's mate from the U.S. Navy. They had moved to Arizona in July to improve his health. In addition to Maddie, there was a 14-year-old son, David. The Turley marriage was not a happy one. Dorothea took up with neighbor Kent Pierce and told several people she intended to marry him. She told Ernest a few times in the presence of others that she should kill him. Dorothea also bought a lot of insurance on her husband. Dorothea had been a beauty queen in her younger days. In 1916, the newspaper, the New York Evening World, picked her as, quote, a modern Venus. Maddie was sent to reform school for attempted murder and released when she was 18. Dorothea was convicted of assault with intent to commit murder. She was sentenced to 10 to 25 years, but her conviction was overturned in 1936 by the Arizona Supreme Court, and she was released. In the original trial, the court had refused to admit testimony about Maddie's character. Dorothea's defense had been that she, Dorothea, had nothing to do with the killing. Maddie did it herself because she didn't want to follow rules. Dorothea denied ever having discussed killing her husband with Maddie by a Ouija board or otherwise. The Arizona Supreme Court found that this refusal to consider Maddie's character was prejudicial. They overturned the conviction and the state decided to dismiss the charges. Apparently, after Maddie was released from reform school, Dorothea tried to reach out to Maddie to bring her back to New Jersey to live with her and David, Maddie's brother. Maddie said, quote, I've decided not to see you. It's the best for you and for me. And I couldn't find out anything else about them. But I'm thinking that the mother, and we can talk more yeah. at, at the end of this, but the mother manipulated the daughter into doing it. Yes. And then she's like, hey, I had nothing to do with it. Right. And the daughter typical. was, what, 13? 15. 15? Yeah. Yeah. That, that raises a There's lot There's a lot of more questions. in the appeal about it, yeah. yeah. But the, the mother clearly did not want... She wanted to be with her boyfriend. Mm -hmm. There's there's a lot more to right. it. Right. She, she probably figured she could say it was an accident. She's a kid. Right. But then if that doesn't work, hey, I wasn't there. Yeah. For the next one, we're jumping to 1987. Ooh! The murder of Noir Van Daan. For Vietnamese listeners, please forgive me. I'm trying to pronounce it correctly. His first name is N-G-O-C, and according to, I've looked it up, how to pronounce it, should be Nguao, 
Van and the D-A-N-G Da'an is how I saw it. So that's how I'm going to pronounce it. This murder was committed by a group of friends, two idiot couples from Orlando, Florida. Mm. Anthony Hall, 25. His girlfriend, Bunny Dixon, 16. Daniel Bowen, 24. You know, any couple with the guy in his 20s and the girl in her teens never comes to any good. No shit. And Daniel Bowen, 24. No relation to Nancy Bowen Mm. from the first story, pretty sure. And Elizabeth Town, 18. This group of four were self-styled Satan worshippers who were always casting spells and performing satanic rituals. Bunny Dixon was very into the Ouija board. She used it to contact evil spirits and demons. According to Bunny, the spirit of a 10-year-old boy named David was telling them they needed... Ooh, another David. I know! Was telling them they needed to go on a road trip to Virginia and join a carnival. I think I remember this one because of the 10-year-old boy spirit. When I was reading this, I'm like, I think I've read about this one before. And they should sacrifice a motorist along the way to get money for the trip. <laughs> a sacrifice, you mean? And make Satan happy. <laughs> right. They have to get money. They have to well, fund the trip at all. So I, I don't want to go on a big thing about it right now, but... Two for one deal. You know, all those quote-unquote Satan worshipers in the 80s and 90s, they were just kids acting out. Yes. Who, looking for a reason to yes. be bad. Anyway. On July 20th, the four set out along the highway. The two girls hitchhiked while the boys hid in the bushes. Classic. When Noir Van Daan stopped to offer them a ride, the men rushed out, grabbed him, and stuffed him in the trunk, robbing him of $120. The four drove northeast about an hour to Daytona Beach, where they pulled their victim out of the car. Bunny Dixon reportedly carved an inverted cross on Noir's chest. Then Anthony Hall and Daniel Bowen supposedly killed him, shooting him six times in the head, neck, and torso. His body was put back in the trunk, and the car was dumped off Interstate 95 in North Carolina, where the two couples parted ways. Elizabeth Town and Daniel Bowen eventually reported the murder to the police, saying they witnessed it but took no part. All four were arrested. The other couple, Anthony Hall and Bunny Dixon, were not together when arrested on August 1st. So it only took him like uh, 10 days to find him. Bunny was in Arkansas and Anthony was in Missouri. And I had a hard time finding a lot about this. I think it was because of the year. It was in the late 80s. You know, that's the kind of right that window of time where things weren't online. They're not necessarily archived. Bunny Dixon denied being the one who carved the cross in Noir Van Don's chest. Daniel Bowen said that Anthony Hall and Bunny were the ones who shot Noir. Anthony Hall, who was the one authorities charged with actually shooting Noel Van Daan, claimed that Daniel Bowen had pointed a gun at him and forced him to shoot. And the only reason he even took part in the first place is because he was under the spell cast by Bunny Dixon and the Ouija board. Anthony Hall was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to death. Daniel Bowen was convicted of first-degree murder and got life in prison. He did not get the death penalty because the jury didn't think he had shot the gun. He was convicted of felony murder, kidnapping, robbery, and burglary charges the others shared. In part, not all of them, but Anthony Hall had the same charges. Bunny Dixon got 50 years and Elizabethtown 17 years. Elizabethtown pled guilty, and I believe she was the only one to plead, and that's why she got a shorter sentence. And plus, she didn't actually do anything except hitchhike, I think, you know, and lure him. I don't think she did any of the attacking. The two men went to trial. I know that for sure from what I could read. It looks like Anthony Hall's death sentence was commuted to life in prison because I looked and he was never executed. They had like a list of executions and a list of people on death row in Florida who had been on death row since 1976 and Mm. when they were executed and he wasn't on that list. And I had read in one of the articles that he had got life in prison. So I'm assuming it was commuted somehow, but I couldn't find anything about it. 
So that was that. I couldn't find much more about them. The next one is not a murder tied to the Ouija board, but a verdict that was influenced by one. I got information from various sources online, but mostly the independent. This one takes place in Great Britain. In 1993, Harry Fuller, a car dealer, age 45, was shot in the back at his home in Wadhurst, East Sussex. His wife, 27-year-old Nicola, was shot four times, the final shot in her head as she made an emergency call to 999, which, as we know, is is the equivalent to 911 here in the United States. Apparently, Henry Fuller was a man who did business in cash and often had a lot of cash in his home and on his person. Stephen Young, age 35, was arrested and tried for the murders. He admitted to being at the home the day of the murder, but he said he saw the dead bodies and ran away. Gee, that was bad luck, right? Mm -hmm. He was in debt to the tune of over 100,000 pounds, Stephen Young. Evidence was given at trial that the Fullers had at least 13,000 pounds in their home the day before they were killed. After the bodies were discovered, police searched and found only about 80 pounds under the couch and about 120 pounds hidden in a shoe. Stephen Young was convicted at the end of a five-week trial. It was a difficult trial with some disturbing evidence. There was a recording of the call to 999 where Nicola was unable to speak because her jaw was shattered. The emergency operator assumed this was kids playing on the line and didn't send police. Jesus Christ. The guilty verdict was a relief to the families and all who had worked on the case. Then, a month after the verdict, there was a headline in the News of the World tabloid. Murder jury's Ouija board verdict. Booze, dirty jokes, and then the Ouija board. Oh. The jurors had been sequestered in the Old Ship Hotel in Brighton. 24-year-old Adrian, who was the youngest member of the jury, said he and three other jurors had tried to get spiritual help in their deliberations. (laughs) The night before the verdict, they were drinking and talking, which I thought they weren't supposed to. No, they they can talk about the case after the arrest, arrest, when they're deliberating, yeah. Someone made a crude Ouija board from a piece of paper, and they used a wine glass as a planchette. Mm. One juror, Ray, took charge of asking the questions. They summoned Harry Fuller's spirit. Ray asked, who killed you? The glass moved around the makeshift board and spelled, Stephen Young done it. The next question was, how? The answer, shot. Well, it must be real, because who else would know that? So you're telling me after a trial, five-week trial, (laughs) where the prosecution (laughs) and the defense present their cases, all the evidence is looked at and explored and talked about, they're going to rely on a Ouija board. Of course. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, but they're talking to Harry. (laughs) That's right. The jurors were trying to figure out what to do. The wine glass planchette spelled out, Vote guilty tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Some of the jurors were crying. Later, some said they had gone too far. And I'm like, really? Did they? Because they believed it? What the fuck? As they broke up to go back to their rooms, they agreed not to tell anyone, even the other jurors. Now, that I read in the paper, in the Independent, but another source was saying that they told the other jurors the next day. But I, I don't know. Well, maybe they agreed not to tell the other jurors. But they might have. But then told them anyway. The other thing that I read said the other juror, they told the other jurors, but the other jurors said that didn't have any, it didn't influence them. So I don't know. I would have, to tell you the truth, I would have been the most unpopular person on that jury because I would have told the judge the next day. And if it was in the U.S., it would have been a mistrial. I know. Juror misconduct happens all the time, but the unusual way this happened was what made headlines. Nicola's father said the four Ouija-loving jurors, quote, made a complete joke of our daughter's death. But University of Melbourne criminal law professor Jeremy Gans, who wrote about what 
about juror misconduct. He studied it. He did some studies and whatever. Mm. He didn't necessarily think so. He said, quote, It brings home that this would have been a very disturbing trial for them. This couldn't have been a fun trial for the jury, and it made me think whatever was going on in that hotel room probably wasn't good times for the jury, but perhaps something else, coping with what they were hearing. Mm. Which is true. They're probably not too bright and... Well, the not-too-bright part, I'll go along. The United Kingdom Court of Appeals threw out the verdict and ordered a new trial. In December 1994, after another five-week trial, Stephen Young was again found guilty and sentenced to two life sentences. As he was let off, Stephen Young was still professing his innocence, shouting, I did not do it, my lord! Relatives of the victims yelled back, You did it all right, you bugger rock! <laughs> The next one takes place in England, also takes place in England. It was hard to find credible sources on this one, but I did manage to find on Parliament UK a copy of an appeal that had information in it that verified some of the other stories I read that were not on his reliable site. So I figured the facts are correct. Because my other information comes from Mysterious Universe and various online sources that are basically a lot of cut and paste information that you see, you know, you keep seeing the same right. thing. David McCallum was 17 in 1995 and lived in a flat in South London. I'm assuming he still lived with his parents. Pierre Antoine was his friend, 16 years old. The two boys had an interest in the occult and black magic. David's room was decorated with skulls, images of Satan, the numbers 666, mm. etc. He should have dated Bunny Dixon, except she was too old for him. On December 2nd, 1995, David and Pierre invited two neighbors, Michael Eridge and Stephen Curran, over to have a seance with the Ouija board. Mm. While they were sitting there, hands on the planchette, it spelled out K-I-L-L. Uh-oh. This was a bit much for Michael Eridge, as I'm sure the creep vibe was already going strong in the room. He got up to leave. Pierre Antoine blocked his way and attacked him, striking him in the head. David McCallum produced a foot-long hunting knife and stabbed Michael Eridge multiple times. Mysterious Universe says 11 times, but I notice almost every number thing in every article is 11, and it's usually wrong when compared with other sources. Like they said that those kids in Florida stole $111 from that Nuan when it was 120, every other source. I know, everything is 11, so I don't trust them. The court documents just say a number of times. In any case, Michael was killed by this attack. David's friend, Stephen Curran, looked on in horror. The two older boys forced Stephen to handle the knife so his fingerprints would be on it. Then they told him they would let him leave, but he better not tell anyone or they would implicate him in the crime. David and Pierre wrapped Michael Eridge's body in bedding and hid him between floors 7 and 8 of the apartment building. Stephen told David McCallum's father about the murder, and police came quickly. David smiled as he freely admitted to killing Michael Eridge. When police questioned him, he told them he had made animal sacrifices to Satan before, but had never killed another human until now. He said he'd been forced by the demons from the Ouija board to kill and had no control over it. He said, all of a sudden I started attacking him. A voice in my head said, kill him. The Ouija board told me to buy the knife and the demon manis told me to kill him. Mm -hmm. The glass spelled out the word kill. It reminds me of that guy when we talked about the Uber, the one where the Uber, oh, yeah, the Uber <laughs> turned black. Yeah. <laughs> I should, we shouldn't laugh. Yeah. David McCallum would only... 
would only plead to manslaughter, not murder, because as he said, said he didn't feel like he was responsible for the killing because it was the demon right. spirit. Yeah. I mean, come on. At the trial, it was determined that David McCallum suffered from an unspecified mental illness and was therefore not mentally competent to understand what he'd done. He was sentenced to an unlimited sentence at Broadmoor Mental Hospital. Pierre Antoine was found to have schizophrenia. He was judged too mentally ill and impaired to be able to assist in his own defense. He was found unfit to plea. I couldn't find out what happened to him, though it sparked a court case that went on for years. Mm. It sounds like a bad pair of guys hanging out with each other. His lawyers had said that if he was unfit to plea, that means he should be unfit to be tried. But the Court of Appeals said, no, they're two different things. But I can't find any evidence that he did go to trial, so I assume he was put in a mental institution for... And he's outside our window right now. Ah, sorry. (laughs) So I'm not sure. I'm assuming he's also was put in... Both of them are institutionalized. Yes, it's too bad when these two young men that had obvious issues... I mean, I don't know exactly what you can do with it, but when they get together, and they both develop an interest in this... Well, people have to recognize red flags and issues earlier. And the thing is, when someone is suffering hallucinations or delusions, we've talked about this before, but whatever their interest happens to be, for instance, if they're you know, super religious, they're going to think Jesus is telling them to do it. The next one takes place in 2001 in Oklahoma. My sources for this story are News OK, the site for the Oklahoman, and TulsaWorld.com, and the local news station site, which I couldn't find the call letters on the thing I printed out, but it's Channel 6 in that area. And you know what makes me mad? As I tried to look for all of these stories, the only one I found pictures of the people was, interestingly enough, the first one, the oldest one. Mm, that is interesting. Every time I tried to look up anyone in any of these stories, all these dumb sites with, you know, 10 crimes related to the Ouija board, and, you know, but it didn't have any pictures. Mm. I wanted to see what these people look like. I know. I always want to see what they look like. You know that. On Sunday, February 11th, 2001, Carol Sue Elvaker, 53 was playing with a Ouija board with her daughter, Tammy Sue Roach, 34, and Tammy's two daughters, ages 10 and 15. The two girls are not named in news sources, and I'm assuming because they're minors at the time. Tammy's husband, Brian Roach, 36, was sleeping in another room. Brian was the former mayor of the small town of Minko, the time about 1,400 people. It was 30 miles from Oklahoma City. Brian had been elected in 1986 by eight votes. Age 19 at the time, he was the youngest mayor ever to be elected. In Minko. Carol Sue Alvaker said that God was speaking to her through the Ouija board. God told her that Brian was evil and needed to be killed. The details are hard to find, but I'm assuming she got a kitchen knife. All I read everywhere is that she took a knife and stabbed him. So, mm. I mean. So, anyway, she went into the room where he was sleeping and plunged a knife into her son in law's chest. Oh. Tammy Sue Roach didn't help her husband, although he called out for help. Carol Sue Elvaker tried, then tried to stab her 10 year old granddaughter, saying she too was evil. Tammy Sue got the knife away from her mother and hid it in the house somewhere. Then the two women and the two girls left the house and drove toward Tulsa on Interstate 44. Carol Sue was driving. I mean, why not go with the crazy lady and let her drive? Well, you never know what. I know, I know. I I mentioned that later. One report also mentioned that Carol Sue tried to kidnap her grandson, Tammy's nephew, who was also 10, but was thwarted by the boy's mother. I didn't see that mentioned anywhere else, though, so I don't know. That was in one of the news Mm -hmm. reports, but only one. Carol Sue Elvaker eventually crashed the car into a road sign, attempting to kill all four of them. Instead, she ended up breaking both ankles. The other three 
only suffered minor injuries. After all of them were out of the car, Carol Sue tried to push her 15-year-old granddaughter into traffic. Even though both ankles were broken, Carol Sue ran from the scene, shedding her clothes as she went. She jumped over the barrier on the median strip and ran into the woods on the other side of the highway. Police found her hiding in the woods and arrested her. Tammy Sue Roach was also arrested and charged with as an accessory to murder. Police said she hid the weapon, did nothing to help her dying husband, and made no effort to escape her mother. Tammy Sue was also charged with enabling child abuse. A week before her trial, in September 2001, Carol Sue Elvaker's attorneys entered an insanity plea. Grady County Assistant District Attorney Brett Burns said he realized it wasn't a case worth trying. The defense had two experts ready to testify Carol Sue was legally insane, and the prosecutor's office also had exams done with their expert with the same result. So the plea of not guilty by reason of insanity was accepted by the court, and she went to a mental hospital instead of jail. Tammy Sue Roach's charges of accessory to murder were dropped. They would not have stood after her mother being found not guilty. She pled guilty to the charges of enabling child abuse and served a year in jail. Something like this, it's unbelievable. I guess it's everywhere, Mayor Joe Gilbert of Minko said at the time. I don't really know what that means. Brett Burns said, It's amazing how the grandmother was able to let this Ouija board consume her life. And I'm thinking she obviously had some kind of psychotic break. Dipshit. There's no history of mental illness, or substance abuse for Carol Sue Elvaker, and no record of domestic abuse in the home. So, of course, this leads some internet sites to say that proves there must have been some paranormal reason. I don't think so, but there might be more to the story. And it may sound like Tammy Sue was being callous, but we don't know exactly what was going on and how chaotic things... You don't necessarily... There isn't necessarily a record of abuse in abusive places, and abuse doesn't always mean physical uh, abuse. And also what I was going to say is we don't know how chaotic what was happening in that house when that happened right and the police probably get information from the two girls it's easy to say this happened then this happened then this happened but if your mother just suddenly goes crazy and stabs your husband and then right who knows i don't know so it's a very odd story and the last one is the carroll family we're back in the uk for this one I got information from the Northern Echo, News Corp of Australia, and the Mirror website, and a few random bits here and there. On Christmas Eve 2014, Paul Carroll, 51, was consulting his Ouija board in his home in Consett County, Durham. Paul Carroll was described as having learning disabilities. Like, I didn't know people just hung around consulting their Ouija boards for shit. Maybe some people do. Obviously. He did. He told police he was trying to contact dead people when an evil spirit entered the body of his daughter. Dog Molly, a Bedlington Terrier. Thank you. Thank you, British newspapers, because it didn't say that on other sites. I had to look for that. Mm. Then I had to look up Bedlington Terrier. What kind of dog are they? They're white. Uh, they look kind of like poodly Airedale type. A lot of times they cut their hair. I don't like the way they cut their hair. They cut it so it's like makes their head look like a wedge. Oh yeah. But I they do. Like they that. look like a white Airedale. Oh, if okay. you can picture that, they're very cute. Poor Molly. Paul drowned Molly in the bathtub. Then dismembered her... Well, she had an evil spirit. Then he dismembered her body and dumped the body parts in an outside drain. The drain backed up, and when workers came to fix the issue, they found Molly's body. 
Neighbors reported Paul Carroll to the police, and he was arrested and charged with causing unnecessary suffering to a protected animal. He told police that the supernatural beings that had entered her body were to blame, not him. He pled guilty and received a suspended sentence. Then a few weeks later, in January 2015, Paul Carroll's wife, Margaret, 60, and her daughter... Could... So he killed his dog yes. because he thought she was possessed. Yes. Dismembered her and put her down the drain. Yes. And he... Pleaded guilty, got a suspended sentence, and that was the end of it. And nobody said, maybe this guy's somebody who might be a problem. No. Okay. Apparently. All right. You know. (laughs) I don't know. Well, he was trying to say he didn't even drown her, that the evil spirits killed her. So he's, he's, I don't know. The thing I read said he got a suspended sentence, and the newspaper articles were from after the next part of this story, so they don't mention him, but I believe that he was still in jail when this next part happened. In January of 2015, Paul Carroll's wife, Margaret, 60, and her daughter, Katrina Livingstone, 37, who's Paul's stepdaughter, were using the same Ouija board. Mm -mm. They later said they were trying to contact the spirit of Molly, the dog. The board apparently told them they were both going to die. And this was according to neighbor Donna Sowerby, age 30. She said that the next day, Margaret and Katrina told her that the Ouija board had told them they were going to die soon. So the next day, Margaret and Katrina took prescription drugs and set their house on fire in a suicide attempt. (laughs) I don't know why. Talk about a self-fulfilling No shit! (laughs) The women were found in the backyard, or the garden, as they say in, in the British newspapers. They were brought to the hospital and arrested and charged with arson while in critical condition. Donna Sowerby, the neighbor, told the Northern Echo, the fire was right the way through the property. It was horrible. The roof was right up. I'm not going to try to do an accent. Thank you. We we could not see up the street because of the smoke. There was a mini explosion and one of the firefighters was blown back. Ann Newman, a next-door neighbor, said, The fire was horrendous. There was smoke billowing out. A neighbor came to warn us and was panicking because there were gas bottles next door and was worried that there was going to be an explosion. We were in our night clothes, but she said we had to evacuate right away. We could not come back to our house all day because our house smoke logged and my husband suffers with his chest. We are very angry about what happened. Mm. The Carols had only lived there about a year and they certainly weren't making friends in that neighborhood. And like I said before, Paul must have still been in jail because none of the reports on this mention him. So I'm thinking he was arrested and probably hadn't gone to court yet or something. I don't know. Tony Davis, who was representing Margaret Carroll, told the court she had been using psychiatric services since her mid-20s. He said, quote, following her admission to HMP Low Newton, which is a woman's prison, she had very severe problems and was hallucinating, believing herself to be involved with the spirit world and considering herself to be a black witch. And of course, some of the papers had to write that. Woman said she's black witch. Yeah. Come on. The house was gutted, but the paper noted there were no other dogs on the property. The RSPCA had removed them after Molly's death, according to the Metro site. The mirror said the other dogs were Katrina's, so they had several dogs, apparently. Dan Corday, who was defending Katrina Livingstone at Durham Crown Court, said, This is somebody with an extremely difficult upbringing that left her extremely isolated. Effectively, her only communication was in that extremely close family group. She suffered a number of tragedies, including the loss of her own children, who were taken into care. What she took solace in was her dogs. Mm -hmm. They were charged and convicted of arson where human life was endangered. I think that's the way they say it. It might be whatever. You know, you get the gist. Mm-hmm. Margaret and Katrina were sentenced each to four years in prison. And those are the stories. I think that the last two, obvious, a lot of them 
involve mental health. There are either people manipulating other people who are gullible or young or somehow mentally deficient. Right. I was going to say they're either people the, being manipulated or people with mental health issues. None of them convince me that there's any paranormal no. activity for any. And I, I also say it's hard when you're relying on the sources you're relying on to get a clear picture of a lot of what happened. Like, the first one, the prejudice and everything yes. was such... First of all, you don't even know if one of those women was set up or, you know, you don't know how much of the story was That's really true. even true. I mean, I was thinking that Lila was the... But she might not have been. Right, because you're reading the press... That's already coming from a place of prejudice. Yes. And law enforcement is coming from a place of prejudice. And you really don't know. I mean, you really don't know what really happened. Well, the implication in some of what I read, like a later story, that maybe Andre got Lila to do it. Right. To have Nancy do it, kind of. He wanted to get rid of his right. wife. And that that would make sense. He sounded like an asshole either way. Yeah. And then the but the other ones, a lot of them was just mental illness, and like I said, it it and takes people the form are easily of whatever influence. You're... Like it's the yeah. Ouija board is kind of a vessel yes. for people's mental. And illness you do push and... it. I mean, come on, it doesn't move on its own. I don't care what people no, say. No, I know. Give I me know. a fucking break. So, anyways, that was my. No, that was kind of very interesting. Yeah. Are we gonna do our review? Oh yeah, it's time our for our ne- recommendations. Our negative Nelly's watching. <laughs> Mine Ooh. isn't a crime okay, thing. Huh. The reason I'm doing this is because as I watched it, hating almost every second. And, and yet it, you watched it twice. Well, I'll get to that. I okay. watched it twice because I wanted my notes to fully be accurate about okay. the things. Because wasn't, it wasn't something I was thinking of doing until... On Netflix, there's documentaries, the 70s, Ugh. the 80s. The 90s. The reason I'm doing this is because this particular documentary had elements of a certain type of documentary that are popular now that drive me insane and I hate. Mm -hmm. And this was the absolute embodiment of those. Oh, okay. This is a vessel. Like an Ouija For your rage. For my rage. Okay. And for dislike of this type of documentary. Okay. So it's the 70s which was made by CNN a few years ago. Mm. And this is just the first episode, 70s television. Ooh. Uh. And it's called TV Gets Real or Television Gets Real. And let's just get into our NNW categories because, you know, why not? Help focus your rage. So bad reenactments, no. There are no reenactments. Yeah, okay. Okay? That's Narrative cliches. Okay. First of all... (laughs) One of the things I hate about these kind of cheapo documentaries is they have a zillion talking heads telling you shit you already know. Yes. They have people on there. You don't know why they're there. Yeah, they have no, there's no reason. Right. Telling you stuff that somebody else just told you or that maybe an expert should be telling you. So this, and I'll get more into the gender thing in a minute in one of our next categories. This had 24 men. Hmm. Some of whom were people like Tom Hanks. Some of whom were too young to really have watched a lot of TV in the 70s. It had three women, and they were all there for very specific reasons. Everybody was white, except for LeVar Burton and John Amos, who had um, two things, and a woman, Renee Graham, um, a black 
woman who was there very briefly at the end. But the narrative cliches in this type of documentary are that you have like half a dozen people telling the same story. Yes, little which bits is and pieces annoying. of the story are telling you very obvious things, say about all in the family and stuff yes. that you already know. First of all, it's a waste of time. Mm-hmm. Second of all, it's like, why is Tom Hanks telling me sh- this shit? And I'm not saying everybody on there shouldn't have been on there. There's a guy, it just said writer, David Wilde, writer. <laughs> why is he telling me this shit? Yeah. A lot of the remarks were totally just inane. You know, a lot of them, but they have, I hate that when they have a bunch of people telling the same story or telling you something you just looked at. Yes, that's what I hate. Too. And it's maybe not a classic narrative cliche, but to me it's a narrative cliche. It's a, one that's become a narrative cliche. In this type yes. of documentary. Yes. yes. And when I first saw it on Netflix, I said, oh, that looks interesting. It's the 70s. It's a whole bunch of episodes covering a bunch of different things. And it's CNN has done it. So it won't be like one of those ones you see on VH1 yeah, or whatever. But VH1 yes, it was. So I'm taking away one point for that. All right. The next is racial gender obtuseness. Yes, 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 and yes. There were 24 male talking heads. Okay. There were three female. One was a woman named Elena... Levin or Levine, who wrote a book called Wallowing in Sex, and I'm not sure what it was about. It's my life story. Yeah, me too. There was also a very brief appearance of Valerie Harper, only when they talked about the Mary Tyler Moore show and Rhoda. And then there was a film from probably the early 80s of Penny Marshall, only when they talked about Laverne and Shirley. And it was obviously a TV reporter or somebody talking to her about Laverne and Shirley. That was the female representation on this entire friggin' show. And so, like, when they're talking about Mary Tyler Moore, there's a little bit of irony. They're talking about the Mary Tyler Moore show, and one of the writers says to Mary, and this is being relayed by a man, that, you know, we need more female writers on this, because I don't even know what's inside my wife's purse. And so they're talking about that female sensibility and getting more women, but it's men mansplaining <laughs> this to you. So just the part where they're talking about the Mary Tyler Moore show, the few minutes where they're talking about that, they have this guy, Chris Connolly, who's an editor-in-chief at Grantland, a guy named Jim Miller, who I can't remember what he was or is. This was made a few years ago, maybe three or four years ago. Valerie Harper, Ed Asner, Elena Levine, Ken... A uh, writer, producer on MASH, Ken, I can't remember his last name, and another guy, Alan, who's some critic or something. So those are the people talking about the Mary Tyler Moore show. And that's just an example. Race, they have LeVar Burton, who was on Roots. They have John Amos, who played the father on Good Times and was also in Roots. And they have one... And he was in Mary Tyler Moore. They don't acknowledge oh. that. They have him saying one line while they're talking about Good Times, which was a show with a black cast. They have maybe 30 seconds of him during Roots. They have Renee Graham, a black woman, also talking during Roots, because if you don't know what Roots was, it was a miniseries in the 70s based on Alex Haley's books about it starts out, the guy's a slave, he comes to America, blah, 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 and it's all these generations. So they have 22 white men telling us about TV in the 70s. Some are just randomly chosen white men. Some are people who are specific to shows like Robert Klein and Mike Farrell. But even they get to talk about other shows. Yeah. But the women and the black people, except for LeVar Burton, 
and no offense to LeVar Burton, but he's like, oh, Roots was not just a black story. It was for everybody. So he says these very conciliatory, the kind of things white people want to hear. Mm-hmm. This was all like gender and race from the white man's point of view mm-hmm. when they talk. Ugh. And the, their little bit of talking about gender and race on this thing. And I, I'm obviously going on and on, but they lose a point for that. Okay. Lack of good visuals. No, the only good thing were the clips from the shows. They had a lot of them. They showed some too much. They showed some that you've seen a million times before, but I don't take away anything for that. Missing pieces. Many, many, many. Mm-hmm. One of the things, and this goes with narrative cliches, is it's a very superficial yes. view of things. Yes. And they got into a lot of things like the FCC trying to make Family Hour and how the TV producers and people thought about it they have the dawn of cable they have you know saturday night live and and then they have this inexplicable couple minutes about jiggle shows or tna shows but it's mostly the men the talking heads kind of giggling about it and they don't make any points about it, any cultural points or why this was popular or what it was one of the biggest ironies of the show is it starts with a black and white thing of Howard K. Smith, like, it must have been New Year's Eve 1969, saying, well, the dawn of blah, blah, blah has ended, and was... They constantly use, like, Mike Wallace from 60 Minutes, like, shot clips of him and clips of other news people. Not once do they mention the huge evolution of TV news from short 15 or 20 minute black and white news shows at the end of the 60s to things like 60 Minutes and TV news magazines and all those things. But TV news changed incredibly, and they use it to tell a lot of the story without ever mentioning what a big part of TV that was. They totally skipped the rise of the cop show mm-hmm. from the 60s wow, type. Yeah. You know, it's funny because when they go into the whole FCC thing, they show the beginning of the rookies, mm-hmm. and then they say, we're not showing the rookies tonight to bring you the special look at television, blah, blah, blah. But that was the era of, I mean, the Mod Squad started in the 60s, but the Rookies... Well, I think well yeah, I was the saying 80s, in, the, in the 60s was also the FBI. Right. And, um, All those kind yeah, of... Yeah, Dragnet. Those boring yes. procedural shows. But the 70s started being the character yeah. TV shows. And granted, they weren't as good as but the one of the 80s or yes, the 90s. But, but it's like the Rookies. And yeah. shows like that, mm-hmm. I can't think of a ton. Of, Streets Starsky of San Francisco, Starsky and Hutch. That's a total, total missing piece. And yet they went on and on and on about certain shows, certain other shows yeah. like Three's Company and stuff Ugh. during their jiggle thing. Um, So they're losing a point for that. Another missing piece, too, is like when they talk... They go from good times, and then somebody in the Black Panthers complained to the producer about why, you know, why can't you show black people doing good instead of having these living in poverty? And so then they segue into the Jeffersons, you know. But yet, how can you show the Jeffersons without the theme song? I know. I know. Oh, and that's another thing, back to racial obtuseness. Tom Hanks, one of the constant talking heads, saying... You know, the thing about good times, and it was a poor family who, li- family who lived in a Chicago yes. high-rise, is, you know, they were us. It, it was universal. And I'm like, no. They talked about 
very specific issues that helped white entitled people like apparently not Tom Hanks, but like us kids in white Maine realize the kind of things black people face. And granted it was sanitized and everything, but it was not universal. No, it was, you know, in fact, it's kind of funny because one of the clips they showed is the father saying, why aren't there any shows of black people on it? And the youngest son, Michael or whatever his name was, goes, oh, here's one, the L.A. Lakers versus the, you know, whatever, the Chicago, Detroit Pistons or something. So obviously, it's not a universal experience. It was trying to show the black experience. I guess Tom Hanks missed that. So that goes back to the, but that's the problem when you have 24 talking heads just spewing out platitudes. So one is taken away from missing pieces inaccuracy, anachronisms. I'm taking away half a point because their 30-second review of how cable TV started is so oversimplified it's wrong, and I won't go into it, but they're losing half a point for that. Storytelling, bad, 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 because you're getting this superficial, sanitized view. You're getting what I already said about people, you know, Tom Hanks telling you some scene you just saw on All in the Family, or LeVar Burton talking about the Mary Tyler Moore show. <laughs> People who were who are younger than us. And I started, I was nine when the 70s started. I was 18 when they ended. Pretty much the formative years of my yes. life were spent with 70s TV. And there's people explaining this shit. Like in the, such a superficial way. The this, this storytelling. And they touch on topics. But not explore topics and granted it was only an hour less than an hour episode but it's like if they had less non-essential people telling you stuff you already know they'd have more time to explore have just three of these tv critics or people who know tv history or people who are involved like norman lear they had or gary marshall have them talk about it. But, like, one of the things is, you know, that they they just mentioned kind of about how the networks were wary about Roots and they had to fight to get it on, and they're showing these, you know, the white producers of it all, you know, and it's, you know, maybe talk more about the racism that led to people not wanting to get it on. Um, So they lose a point with storytelling. If I could take off more, I could freshness. No, the style of the documentary is a style that I see all the time now and I can't stand watching. It's just, it's like a cheap, lazy way of doing it. Yes, they don't say one thing in this entire documentary that I didn't already know. And I'm not saying, oh, I know so much. What I'm saying is anybody who knows anything about 1970s TV knows all this shit. It's all been said before. Tell me something new or delve into one of these issues. Yeah. I mean, there's it. a lot to delve into. Tell I mean, it in a new way. That, so it loses a point there. Repetition, I'm taking off half a point because there was a, just a lot of like these easy platitudes about community and it bringing us together and all sorts of shit. And I felt that that stupid shit, even though it was in different words, was repeated a lot. And it's not really what we mean by repetition, but the whole thing pissed me off so much okay. that I'm taking off half a point. Beating the drum, same for that. Taking off half a point because what the whole thing is, 70s TV made us feel good and made us all happy. And, um, you know, the beginning is how TV gets real. And then they spend an hour telling us how it made us all happy and good and community and bullshit. So I'm And the off- thing is, it's, a, it's an interesting topic that... If you could talk about and and really 
delve into the reasons, you know, the way it evolved over the decade and everything. And it's annoying that they give it such a... Yes, yes. I mean... A shallow path. Like I said, on one hand, okay, it's one episode yes. of an entire series, and I'm not watching the rest of it. On the other hand, the just the way they did it, why do you need 24 men saying shit mm-hmm. you already know? I know. Why do I need these guys? I mean, yes, I, I want to see Bob Newhart. I want to see Norman Lear. Yes. I want to see Gary Marshall. I didn't need Tom Hanks. I didn't need Chris Connolly or whatever his name, editor of Grantland. I didn't need, you know, maybe some of the critics. There was a guy critic on Fresh Air. I like Ed Asner. I want to see him. This guy, writer. He's just a writer. You know, and where were the women? There was 30 minutes where there was not a woman mm-hmm. talking. Yeah. Even though they're talking about things that had to do with women. So my total, after taking everything away, this gets a whopping three and a half points Ooh. out of ten. I have to say my lowest ever. Uh, is it? I was going to ask you. NW, yeah, I've never given a score. I don't think I've ever given a score lower than seven or seven and a half. But it's because, and I have a lot of notes here. There's a lot more I could say. But... It's not just this episode of this documentary, but it's this type of thing that I see way too much of. I know there are people who get tired of hearing about gender stuff. When I'm watching a documentary and every fucking person is a man telling me shit I already knew, it's like, are there no women? It's just like tell being me at work. And I bet if you're black and you're watching something like this and you're seeing white people telling well, you about the black negative experience. Negative Nelly's watching. Yes. So it's our perspective. Right. And, and so... Yeah, 3.5 for the 70s. I'm not going to watch the 80s. I'm not going to watch the 90s. And I'm not going to watch the rest of the I, 70s. I don't and I'm blame begging you, if there's anyone out there who has the capacity to do this, do a good documentary about TV that would be in very the 70s. Good. I'd love to. In fact, I, I saw another one months or a year or something ago that was equally annoying. It's, stop saying the same shit. We I all know. know that All in the Family changed sitcoms. Tell no me something shit. New. Okay. Okay, so today I'm doing a podcast. Okay. I mean, I am doing a, but I'm like... But you're reviewing a podcast. My Negative Nelly review. This one is a comedy podcast. It's called True Crime Obsessed. And the hosts are Patrick Hines and Jillian Pensavale. And the reason I'm doing it is because I listen, (laughs) I just listen to a ton of them in a row. And I, and I very much enjoy this podcast. Some people I don't think would, but I'll tell you about that after. Let me go through the list. Bad reenactments doesn't apply. Although... Some podcasts do have free enactments. Oh, but you know what? Yes. They bug me. <laughs> Let me just tell you what the podcast is before I, I go ahead, because it'll help with my with the rating. They watch true crime documentaries, usually. Mm. Not shows, but usually movies. They watch Netflix and stuff, but it's not like, you know, they don't watch TV series. They watch true crime, different ones like... Like making a murderer and yes. evil genius. Yeah, like. they did. Evil genius was so funny when they did it. And they recap them. So similar to the other podcasts you and I have, GroovyTube, it's the same type of thing. It's been on hiatus, but... But the same type of thing. The host, Patrick Hines and Jillian Pensavale, I have other podcasts that I don't listen to. They're in New York, so they have one called Theater People Podcast, The Hamilcast, which is about Hamilton, um, Broadway Backstory, so they have a lot of that. And they do have one called My So-Called Podcast, where they talk about episodes of My So-Called Life, so that's also mm. similar to wow, our... Wow, they have a lot of podcasts. To our, yes, they, they do. They must have other people to do their editing. And I stuff. don't know. Like, they do, like, The Imposter. And oh, stuff. Yeah. yeah. And they did, yeah. um, My Kid Can Paint That. That was pretty funny. Oh, I, I like that. So, um, bad reenactments, as I said, no, but Jillian does often 
imitate people. <laughs> and she's pretty funny when she does it. I'm going to have to start listening oh, to Oh, it's her. so funny. Narrative cliches, no. Uh, racial gender obtuseness, no. Patrick is gay and he's married to, I think his husband's name is Stephen. Jillian is straight. They're funny. They call each other girl all the time. They don't seem to have any that I can see the obtuseness of anything. Seem pretty woke. Woke, yeah. Lack of good visuals, obviously not applicable. Missing pieces, no, because they do basically um, how we do it on our podcast. Right, they recap. They recap. And so they, they go through the show, and and like some some of them do take more than one episode because like when they did Evil Genius, they did two episodes because it was a four part, and they did Wild Wild Country, which is pretty funny. Mm. A lot of the ones that they've talked about, I I have seen, but even if I haven't seen them, they're pretty funny to listen to. And Accuracy and acronyms, no, because of the nature of their show, that doesn't really come up. Because they're just reacting to it, so I, unless there's something inaccurate in the show they're watching. Storytelling is very good. As I said, I enjoy them, but some people do not. I was reading the reviews. It's one of those love or hate. Jillian drives the narration, usually. She will tell what's going on. Patrick does join in, but he, a lot of times he's laughing he laughs at her because she's pretty funny, and he's constantly laughing, and he laughs a lot. And some listeners, from what I've read of reviews, do not like his laughter. Oh, jeez. But I, it doesn't bother me. I think he's funny because I'm usually laughing at her, right. too, because she's just funny. Do they not like it because does it drown her out? or do they No, just people like... called it a cackle and stuff, you know. Oh, it's geez. similar to you, what you hear about when it's women. Right. I mean, his mm-hmm. voice is not unlike ours. He doesn't yeah. have a voice for radio. But hes they're funny. They're, they're interaction is very funny. Their chemistry is funny. I, I like it. Freshness. I'm going to take a half point off just because it's a similar format to a lot of other podcasts. And it's not like it's a new idea. And maybe other people have covered these shows that they're talking about before. Not really right. a ding against them. But repetition, no. They pretty much... Go along with whatever the the way the show is going. Beating the drum, I'll say a half a point off for that just because if there's something, a person or something they don't like, they'll keep saying it all through. Yeah. <laughs> or they'll, they have this, now they have this bell called the garbage bell that if someone's a real asshole, they'll ring it every time they talk about the person. <laughs> but sometimes it's the hero bell, like when they did the tower, they, they said it was all hero bells pretty much. Everybody yeah. was great. So the final score was a nine. Oh, that's good. I haven't listened to the most recent ones. I've listened to most of them, as I said. When I go on a long trip, sometimes the way iTunes works, it'll just go to the next one on that if you're in a show, which is fine Sometimes. sometimes. If you enjoy listening to us, then the voices obviously don't bother you that you would think that they were funny too. Patrick is funny. I like him, but Jillian is the one that she's just really funny. Her She says the same things that I would say. She's very sarcastic. Like when she talks about somebody, like for instance, Marjorie what's-her-face in um, Evil Genius, she's like, a.k.a. this bitch. She always calls people this bitch. <laughs> Give it a try. If you watch a lot of true crime shows, you'll... Well, the reason I started... I had to get, listen to something different uh, that was funny. Yeah. I just needed something... Are you bothered by all the... No. By all the dark. <laughs> I just, but I, I was basically caught up on all the other ones I had been listening right. to. So I was listening to them. Yeah. Uh, because well, that's good. Funny. That's good. You've convinced me. Is that it? Yeah, I think so. I you think can find us on 
On well, first of all, our website, Crime and Stuff Online, Crime and is Stuff a good Online place to start. We're also on iTunes and other platforms. We are it's on Twitter. Facebook. You can go on our like our site. We don't really have a discussion group because honestly, we have a hard time keeping up with everything. Mm-hmm. We're on Twitter. You can follow us on Twitter, mm-hmm. Crime and Stuff. Yeah, and we're supposedly on Instagram, but we don't do much. Maybe someday we'll have time to do all these social media things. Twitter's the be- easiest one. And to you can do. find us there. Rate and review us. Please rate and review. You know, we appreciate Give that. Give us a good rating if you can. If you want to, if you think we deserve it. And also, if you read my new book, you can go on Amazon and review yes. that. Because reviews count for a lot. Yes, go on Amazon and review Mo's book. Yeah. Buy it, too. Yeah. Not one of the damaged ones in oh, the box. Motherfucker. Yeah, I can't I know, believe that. And Shit. speaking of my new book, next yeah. Episode. There were three things. I wouldn't totally classify them as crimes, crime related, that kind of inspired the book itself. Like, I kind of set these right. Like, when I start a book, sometimes I'm like, ooh, maybe I can do this. And I'm like, how can I work all three of these things that intrigue me into this book? And so the next episode will be about one of them. Those three. It'll all be three. Kind of like yeah, I'll do not long the, things. Some the of them. Inspiration I inspiration mean, yes. of no news is. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Bad news travels fast. Thank you. By but, Maureen Miller. By Maureen. But if you haven't read No News Is Bad News, sure. or Cold Hard News, the first one. There, it's a and if you have any news phrases that we can <laughs> for the fourth for book. the fourth book. Yeah. well we did come up with a list that i time. did i gotta find it but yeah. anyway thank you for, for listening. listening at the time oh, sorry unknown name oh, let's just see who that is okay mom and dad i never are you kidding all i got are calls from bill collector i know yeah i know the feeling